0: Well, the Cardinals are off today, and so it's time for another Cardinals Off Day podcast. I'm Ben Godar, here as always with my good friend Ben Humphrey, and I'm just going to let folks know, Ben, we are uh, recording in the morning this time, I think for the first time ever. Um, so I've been up. I played tennis already this morning. I've got a cup of coffee. So I, for myself personally, I'm going to say if I seem more energetic in today's episode, it's it's because of those things, and it's not you know late at night, and I'm a couple beers in. How are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, since we have a nine-month-old and a big dog that likes to walk early in the morning, uh, I had my cup of coffee about four hours ago, four and a half hours <laughs> ago. So uh, if I seem as lethargic as usual, it's because my coffee has worn off. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. Was the sun out yet when you when you went out, then? Uh, it, it was. And actually, what is pretty fun is we had a couple of Cooper's hawks nest in the neighborhood and their fledglings are out and about. And around six in the morning, uh, the parents and the the young Cooper's hawk are out flying around the neighborhood and being very loud. And so the baby and the dog were very interested in that. Uh, a couple blocks from our house and that's been uh something we have been able to watch for about a week now and adds a little bit of uh you know nature and wildlife to our morning walk in the suburbs that we you know don't often have very nice. Very nice.
0: Well, uh,
1: today, um, we actually have a whole
0: bunch of questions that folks have emailed in. Um, and, you know, with obviously the trade deadline just happening, I think a lot of interesting things to wonder about uh, what's going on with the team, where it's going. So we are going to be doing a 100% uh, mailbag episode today and just kind of burning through those questions. But before we do that, uh, Ben, well, what have you learned?
1: Um, I have learned that the Cardinals are more willing to sacrifice fielding prowess for batting prowess uh, after last season. Um, and we've seen this a little bit early in the year with Juan Yapez. Uh, the team going out of its way to find uh, opportunities for him. Uh, Brendan Donovan is versatile, um, but the reason that he's versatile is he's, I'd say, league average-ish at a lot of positions. I don't think you would call him an elite fielder at any position, at least based Mm -hmm. on what I have seen. Um, And now we are seeing it with, you know, Nolan Gorman uh, taking plate appearances away from Tommy Edmond at second base now and the trade of Harrison Bader to the Yankees and moving Dylan Carlson to center field. Uh, The team seems to be leaning a little bit more Uh, toward hitting skill uh, with the way they're constructing their roster and lineups uh, since the start of the year. And uh, I think that's been pretty interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, um, and similarly, I think I've learned that, uh, you know, the uh, rumors of Paul DeYoung's death may have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, and obviously, it's he. It's a small number of games still that he's been back in the major leagues. So I'm not going to, you know, declare anything. But, uh, you know, I do. I think it's worth keeping in mind that for the the first three years of Paul DeYoung's career, 2017, 2018 and 2019, he was a, a 121, 102 and 99 uh, OPS plus player. Uh, uh, player. So, um, you know, that obviously that first year, you know, really flashed something and then was about a league averages hitter after that, but, you know, a league averages hitter that also played a uh, very good shortstop defense. So, uh, you know, in short, a valuable player. Um, 2020, um, and 2021, you know, he fell off. Um, he was, uh, about, uh, you know, 10 to 15% below league average. Um, and again, as a reminder, uh, Edmund has been 10% below league average, uh, throughout his career. So, you know, kind of a comparable type player there. And then, uh, you know, and then of course this year, uh, early in the season was just unplayable, went down to the minors. My point being, I think if you look back over Paul DeYoung's entire body of work, the fact that he's, um, you know, he's still he's 28 years old, which is not young, but it's not old either. Uh, you know, I think we can be optimistic that Paul DeYoung can, you know, potentially remain a, a productive member of this team. And frankly, I think the Cardinals are in a really good position because, um, you know, D- they brought DeYoung back up. He's he's playing uh, very well so far. And if he, if he maintains that, obviously great. But they've also proven to themselves that Edmund can be a valuable utility player. And so if DeYoung were to, you know, his offense were to kind of crater again, uh, you know, I think they plug Edmund back in there and, uh, you know, and, and hopefully bat him at the bottom of the order instead of the top. And uh, they're still fine. So, um, you know, this team, one of the things that makes me most excited about this team is there's a lot of depth. There's more depth than I think we've seen in, in a number of years. And having Paul DeYoung back up there, um, especially in place of Edmondo Sosa, uh, really, uh, you know, is, is just another piece of that. So,
1: And it's it's interesting because uh, Tommy Edmond hitting worse than Paul DeYoung uh, this year uh in the month of july tommy edmund had a 214 weighted on base average and 37 weighted runs created plus which means he was uh 63 percentage points below league average Open the door really uh for paul the young uh if he hit in triple a which he did to his credit uh to get that opportunity and now it seems like we are uh, once again, having a shortstop competition of sorts with Paul the Young uh, having an opportunity uh, to be the front runner, which the more things change folks, the more they stay the same. So yeah, absolutely. And I know and I know people
0: people get on us for being uh uh you know uh saying nasty things about Paul DeYoung. But of course we don't believe we say nasty things about him. I think we feel like we've been consistent in saying that this guy profiles more as a utility player and and I think could be incredibly valuable for the Cardinals in that role. Just as I said, here's a guy who you know can step in and be an everyday shortstop if you need him to be. Um, you know, he's very good against left-handed pitching. I would still, you know. Uh, I would start him, um, you know, fairly regularly against left handers to give guys a break. And uh, similarly, you know, take a pinch hit against left handers, a pinch runner, a late inning defensive replacement. When I all those things I just talked about, you're talking about a guy that's still a pretty major component of your team. You're not talking about relegating him to the Edmondo Sosa
1: end of the bench role. No, not at all. And and Tommy Edman, I uh, I think you misspoke and said Paul DeYoung, uh, Ben, but uh, Tommy Edmund is a very valuable utility player. That's been our position. He should bat ninth uh, if you are insistent on playing him against a right-handed starter. And he uh, should bat probably leadoff uh, against lefties. But the team seems really to want Dylan Carlson to be the leadoff hitter. Um, and I'm I, I find that very interesting, and I don't know if it's more of a plate approach thing or what, yeah. um, but uh, I think the way that, that the team has started using Edmund now that his bat has uh, had a very significant and brutal uh, regression um, is reflective of the way we think he is most valuable to the St. Louis Cardinals. It'll be interesting to see if they keep that up because, you know, as you said, I think it's probably dependent on, how well Paul DeYoung hits?
0: Yeah, well, and of course the the conundrum there, if you're facing a left-handed starter, is that Dylan Carlson is also a significantly better hitter uh, from the right side as well. So there's you know probably even more reason to have Carlson lead off against that left-handed hitter. And and I've noticed that as well. And I get the sense as as flexible as Marmol has has become with lineups and batting orders and things like that, certainly compared to his his two immediate predecessors. I do feel like the team values a certain amount of consistency at the very top. And they're a a little more reluctant to kind of move those, you know, kind of seem like they want more of a, a a firm uh, grounding for what the, you know, maybe the top four in the order are. And then they're getting a little more creative after that. I don't know. Have you, have you gotten that sense as well?
1: It, it certainly does seem that way and they keep doing what I would hope they would do and bat, uh, paul goldschmidt second yeah <laughs> yeah and then they just go they drift away from that because they they are unable to i guess get that leadoff role uh squared away and so um i but i think you're right i think that they are trying to get that like top four locked in so they have their guys and um, so far, it just it has not uh, worked out that well. Um, but they sure seem to be dead set on Dylan Carlson ultimately being in that lead off or number two spot in the order. and hopefully you know he's able to find the consistency that you look for um, in the top part of that order uh, with his plate approach and production and yeah. so. Uh, he's had a really good middle part of the season and hopefully he's able to continue that through to the end.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, there's a lot of other uh, things worth talking about and uh, we have a whole bunch of questions that really cover those. So Ben, why don't we uh, dive right in there? Our first question comes from a laughing man and laughing man asks, are we overcorrecting on
1: left-handed pitching? Um, I don't think so. And we can look at this question uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, One is we can look at the trade deadline and the pitchers the Cardinals got. But we could also look at, in a broader context, the Major League draft um, and also the uh, trade deadline acquisitions, and I don't think it's an overcorrection in either regard. Um, we talked about this a little bit with Kyle uh, after the draft, um, and it seems that the team just went with, you know, guys who were high on their board, who were within the 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 range that they wanted to sign players for. And so they took the best player available that they felt would sign in a way that fits uh, with their overall approach to the draft, which I should say, Ben, um, I was reading uh, articles about the draft now that the 2022 class has largely been signed. Mm -hmm. And the Cardinals, uh, since they went to the new uh, bonus system, are one of a handful of teams that consistently outspend their draft bonus pool. So they actually, Bill DeWitt spends more money on draft picks than the Cardinals allotted pool. And uh, quite frankly, I think he de- he deserves recognition for that because I think that's a smart thing to do for an organization and for ownership. But um, I, with respect to this draft, I think they just signed the pitchers they thought were best that fit within their approach to the bonus pool. Yeah. And then at the trade deadline, they went out And they kicked tires on a lot of starters. And you saw that uh, with all the rumors about who they were interested in this, that, and the other. And they ultimately wound up uh, with two lefties uh, only one of whom is under contract next year. Uh, And so I, I don't think it's an overcorrection. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I agree. And and I guess a distinction that I would make as well is there's left-handed pitchers and then there's lefties. Um, And, you know, uh, (laughs) there are certain types of left-handed pitchers and you you definitely see this prominently in bullpens right you see the left-handed pitchers that that you know what we you know back in the you know ancient days of you know 2018 or 19 would have called loogies right you had the uh the guys who just really beat up left-handed pitching usually it's a nasty nasty slider that they just can't pick up and so they're um you know, the, the heavy splits against them, um, et cetera. And, and, you know, and there are starters of course, who do that, you know, as well, maybe have some, some bigger splits. I don't think with respect to, uh, the, you know, the two uh, pitchers that they picked up at the, at the trade deadline, um, you know, these are more kind of pitch to contact type guys that, uh, you know, do well against hitters from either side of the plate. Frankly, that's why they've had, you know, relatively lengthy major league careers uh, so far as starting pitchers because they can do that. So in a way, when you're getting... You know, guys who pitch in the low 90s and, you know, pitch to contact these type of pitchers, frankly, I don't think there's that much difference between a left-hander and a right-hander. And so I think they were more going after these type of pitchers um, with this profile, again, because as we've said many times, they just don't want to pay up to get into that really high-octane, high-strikeout Luis Castillo kind of, of tier. So in the tier that they're shopping, I don't think there's much difference between lefties and righties. And I think they just happen to acquire two lefties at the deadline. All right our next question comes from drizzy druster and uh drizzy uh, druster uh <laughs> asks <laughs> i'm really having to enunciate this one ben <laughs> uh, Dri- drizzy druster asks what would you compare this farm system to i think the front office is banking on them to be what the cubs had in bryant schwarber and baez so um Ben, um, before we kind of get into this, I did actually um, look up the first part of that question. What would you compare this farm system to? Uh, I have frankly been thinking a lot about the uh, post 2011 uh, Cardinals, because as you may recall, in 2011, the Cardinals won the World Series. And I believe by most outlets had the number one or one of the very highest rated farm systems in baseball. Um, and this current system, of course, is is approaching that level. So just to recap, here were your, your top 10 in 2011 in that Cardinal system. Shelby Miller, Carlos Martinez, Tyrell Jenkins, Colton Wong, Oscar Tavares, Lance Lynn, Zach Cox. Uh, Eduardo Sanchez, Jordan Swaggerty, and then just going through the past, oh, and Trevor Rosenthal, sorry, was number 10. And even beyond that, you had actually number 11, Matt Adams, number 12, Matt Carpenter. Uh, And further down the list, you had uh, had Joe Kelly and you had Tommy Pham. That's a lot of really good major league careers (laughs) on that list. Um, So I think you know, if you wanted to say when was the last time the Cardinals system was that good, that's probably the the year that you would have to go back to. So, Ben, do you ad- agree with that? And then w- to the question, what do you think about this farm system? Do you think they're banking on them being what the Cubs had and Bryant, Schwarber, and Baez? Um,
1: I think that this front office and ownership group uh, has a little bit of a different approach obviously um you know the cubs are they have bottomed out you know they had the sell-off and and they tanked in order to get those prospects yep. and so what they were really doing they were banking on that group of prospects in a way that the cardinals are not banking on any of these prospects right Correct. like jordan walker is a third baseman but they still went out and got nolan arenado yep. Um, Or maybe Jordan Walker is a first baseman, but they have Paul Goldschmidt. Um, So now they're trying him in the outfield. They have Paul DeYoung. They have Tommy Edmond. Is is Mason win the future? Yes. But they have guys uh, who could be uh, average to above average shortstops right now that they're winning with right now. You you know what I'm saying? And And we could go down the line. Um, in terms of these top prospects I mean Alec Burleson uh, we're going to have a question about him later because he's blocked where does he fit into this yeah you know at, at this point in time and so I think the way to look at it is they they are expecting Jordan Walker to be Oscar Tavares. yes and if, if that does not work it, and, and when I say that I mean just in terms of a middle of the order hitter that's what they are—they are banking on. And after uh, Tavares passed away in a tragic and untimely fashion, I, I think we saw what happened with the team. They weren't—they weren't built uh, organizationally for that. And then they had to go out uh, and try to fill externally with like a, a Dexter Fowler. And so, um, I, I think that this team—I really like your comparison, Ben, because I feel like the Cardinals are banking on this crop in the way that they were banking on the last crop, uh, at the turn of the last decade in in that they want them to be good. They're expecting them to be good, but they're not all in on these prospects panning out in the way that the Cubs were where it's sink or swim with this group. Um, and so, uh, I think it's a stronger position to be in uh, than where the Cubs were. Um, I also would like to say it is about as high praise as you could heap on the front office and the player development and scouting departments that they have been able to put this type of quality in the farm system without tanking and getting those top five top 10 draft picks yep. and build, and building the farm system off of that foundation, like the Cubs have done. Yep. Cause what happened to the Cubs after they got good in the way the Cardinals are, have been good for 20 years, they, the bottom fell yep. out. It was unsustainable because they did not have the talent in the front office and scouting departments necessary to keep the pipeline flowing that the Cardinals have had and been successful with. And so, um, the Cardinals are hoping that these players pan out, but I don't think they're dependent on them panning out in the way those chi- those Chicago teams were. Yeah, uh, I have what like seven, ten years ago. Yeah.
0: no, Ben, I could I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, my first reaction to this is it's it's different for all the reasons you said. The Cardinals uh, are a team that. Um, you know perpetually refreshes through their pipeline but it's never a tank and we need all these guys to do it and, and I thought it was interesting you know Ben you pointed out uh, you know while the Cubs were of course uh, waiting for Chris Bryant to come up and by waiting I mean suppressing his service time um, you know you compared that to the Cardinals who even though they have you know had Jordan Walker uh, in the system and Nolan Gorman by the way you know had these two uh, you know potential third base prospects they still went out and acquired a uh Uh, nolan arenado to play third base so i went back i was trying to remember who played third base for the cubs who did they acquire to play third base while they were waiting on chris bryant it was a luis valbuena so right there i think that's a pretty good illustration of the difference between how these cubs uh how these clubs operate um so, yeah, um, at the same time, I, th- I understand the question because this crop of Cardinals talent, again, as we just talked about, is approaching that kind of like number one system in baseball type talent. So it is approaching, you know, something like the level that that the Cubs had. And that's very exciting. And the fact that they've been able to do that without tanking, all the more exciting. So it's, it's really, you know, I mean, I think since really, um, you know, it really over the last 10 years, I think this has to be the most exciting time to be a, be a Cardinals fan right now. So, um, uh, JC Keller asks with Andre Payante moving to the pen, given his batted ball profile as a starter, what do you think his optimized usage as a reliever is?
1: Um, I think it's probably in the Seth Manus role. Um, and, I I should also add, I doubt his ground ball rate is going to be quite this high um, by the end of the year uh, and as the season progresses. Um, I I mean, I think it'll be a, a very good ground ball rate, but it's just very, very extreme and so extreme that it makes you question how sustainable it is. Um, like right now he's at 62% ground ball rate, which is extraordinarily high. Um, you know, usually like high fifties is, is, uh, close to the top of the league. And so, um, I think he's probably, uh, and also they'll want to manage his innings a little bit, I think, but I wouldn't be surprised, Ben. And we have another question about, uh, him piggybacking with Dakota Hudson. So we'll get to that. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it it may not be a formal piggybacking situation, but they might use him, you know, when they need a couple innings there to bridge the gap uh, to the late inning guys. You know, if you have a starter go four and a third or or just five innings, I wouldn't be surprised to see them give Polante, you know, two innings. Uh, in a row and, and kind of use them in more of the, uh, a little bit longer appearance mold for relievers. What do you think? A hundred percent. Um, you know, Peante, um, you know, frankly
0: has a little bit of a, probably more of a starter profile. You'd say, I think his, you know, his greatest asset, I think has basically been the low walk rate, you know, he's kept his lock walk rate pretty low he is not by any means a high strikeout pitcher he's a pretty low strikeout pitcher though on this cardinals club that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't really make him stand out much cuz so many of them are um you know and and as you said his uh the, the ground ball rate is is pretty high right now um and and i think it, it will continue to stay pretty high i'm looking at his you know minor league last two minor uh or i guess it was last season you know he was uh uh, just under 60% in uh, across double A AA and triple A. So, you know, I think it, it could stay relatively high and, and really just in general, his profile kind of depends on, you don't walk guys and you, you limit hard damaging contact and, I mean, that's, I mean, it's like a broken record with this Cardinals team, isn't it? They, those are the kind of guys they get. And it's absolutely a profile that can be uh, pretty successful at a relatively low cost. Uh, but it's also quite volatile because you don't have those strikeouts to kind of, um, you know, guarantee a certain level of success and get you out of jams. And, you know, we've all seen the bad payante starts when um, the the contact off of him is, is quite hard. So um I don't see him as ever really moving into like a high leverage role in the bullpen. Um, uh, I agree with you. Um, Seth Maness is a good example. Um, And I think, I think more that kind of multi-inning, you know, kind of role. I think, um, you know, whether it's a a kind of planned piggyback with Dakota Hudson, I think more so it's just like, you know, anytime our, our starter falters uh, early, um, you know, if Payante is available, let's, you know, go to him for, you know, two to three or four. So that, that would be my expectation as well. Um, uh, tr- tr- let's see here. Uh, Sam Crawford asks, he's currently on track, but it's still a big if, but if the team has a healthy Jack Flaherty, uh, uh, with no restrictions come October, which of the five starters would you bump to the pen?
1: Um, Ben, I think we're going to say the same name right now, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, Yeah. I, I was going to say, it's a shame we don't have video or recording here because we could have done a countdown with our hands and then said Dakota Hudson at the same time. Um, It's uh, I Hudson is the obvious candidate because he's the worst pitcher. Um, And I think that's the move that the team will make. And then I think that they, you know, probably use Hudson in the break glass in case of emergency. And by emergency, I mean, the starter gets shelled and we, we need the, you know, the long reliever of myth and lore that Mike Matheny always felt he needed, but would never use, right. you know, like we have him here in case we ever need him, but we will never use him. Um, and so I, I would not be at all surprised if that's, Uh, where they stick Hudson because he just walks too many guys. You can't bring him in uh, maybe to accept in those situations where you're already behind and you just need to cover some innings. Well, and Hudson also – you know in years
0: past he had uh, you know up to and around 20% strikeout rate. So again, that's not a high strikeout rate league wide, but it was it was decent and, and on this team it was actually good and that kind of helped you absorb the high walk rate from Hudson, but his strikeout rate has cratered this year. he he has a lower strikeout rate than Andre peante does this year. Um, I mean Hudson frankly is like, the wheels are kind of coming off the bus this season for him. And, and um, you know, I don't think that necessarily means he's, he's done. I think maybe he's really hitting a a very rough patch here, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, He's uh, I think he's getting close to unplayable. And I think the only reason that he's kind of staying in the rotation right now, is he's even worse as a bullpen option you know than peante I mean you you know a guy who doesn't strike anybody out and walks too many guys you know like in his right-handed uh, you know that's the, the, you know you don't want that guy in your bullpen at all so, um, it's going to be really interesting to see where they, where they go from here. And, and yeah, I know the reports on Flaherty are, have been somewhat exciting, but I actually haven't been reading them. I'm going to be honest. I have not been looking at them in detail because I, I just, uh, he's broken my heart too many times, Ben. And so I'm just kind of waiting until I see it at this point.
1: Yeah, he has, uh, Flaherty has reached, um, for me, the Chris Carpenter, uh, you know, like, like post 2006, Chris Carpenter. I was was going to be even meaner. I was going to say Mark Mulder was the name that came to mind. (laughs) I, yes, I, I can definitely understand the Mulder thing. Um, But like Carpenter, you know, after 2006, he had Tommy John and then uh, was able to be pretty good for a couple of years. Uh, well, more like three years, but he had you know a litany of problems for like two years, but then was able to come back and and pitch very well, and then had problems yeah. again, and so uh, with him, I just kind of took the uh, the approach of I am not expecting anything, so anything he gives us will be a pleasant yeah. surprise, and that's where I am with Flaherty certainly this right. year, um, and you know, we'll, we'll see what it's like come spring training. But this year uh, I think it, it, is it fair to say Ben that the official Cardinals off day podcast position is uh, we are not expecting anything from Jack Flaherty. So we will be very happy if the Cardinals get anything from Jack. Flaherty.
0: Well, a hundred percent. And I think we're also, uh, you know, one of the great things about the trade deadline moves is um, we can comfortably take that perspective and hopefully the Cardinals can as well. Cause really over the last two years, They've been so understaffed in terms of starters, and so as Flaherty has kind of gone on and off and lingered, um, you know, on the injured list, it's basically been like, uh, you know, their solution to that has essentially been a prayer. I think, you know, <laughs> that he will come back at some point. And really, uh, again, with with uh, you know four legitimate major league starting pitchers in the rotation right now, um, you know, if you get to the postseason with four. Those four pitchers, you're absolutely fine. So if they don't get anything from Flaherty over the rest of the season, I think they're still okay. But yeah, if he comes back, that would be amazing. You know, if it's in like a you know short burst bullpen rule. If he comes back and has enough time to, you know, join your rotation, you know, then that's that's even better. But I agree. That's kind of an icing on the cake situation at this point. Um uh, so our next question, um, comes from, uh, our good friend, uh, Daniel, uh, at C70. Uh, and he asks, when do you see the promotion of Alec Burleson and what has to happen for that to occur? Um, and we actually, Chris Childs kind of replied to that comment as well to, to just make sure we were aware and, and thinking about the fact that Burleson also is not currently on the, on the 40 man. So, so Ben, I have some thoughts on this, but do you have some thoughts on when this, when this
1: happens? Uh, this, and we touched on this, I think last episode or two episodes ago, ago, I, I firmly believe that Alec Burleson, uh, makes it to St. Louis when Corey Dickerson is no longer under contract or there's an injury, you you know, an injury could always force the team's hand. Um, But assuming health for everyone, uh, which, you know, when we're talking about Tyler O'Neill, obviously that's an open question. Um, But Dylan Carlson has spent time on the injured list as well. Uh, But when you look at the roster with Newt Barr, who has hit very well uh, recently, um, and Dickerson, who has also hit very well uh, more recently. If there is an injury, do you want an all left-handed outfield for all intents and purposes? Um, and then also lurking on the injured list is Juan Yepes, who is similar to Burleson in the profile of uh, maybe an outfielder, but not really more of a hitter. And so if Yepes who seems to be making progress based on recent reports, if he's ready to go, I think that uh, presents another hurdle uh, for a promotion there. And so I just think the path of least resistance in terms of roster composition right now uh, and assuming health, and Yipes rejoining the team i just think it's you know making the roster out of spring training next year is the thing that i think is most likely for him what, what I, do you I agree there?
0: with you 100 percent. and um yeah you're right he's he, you know he's currently in the in terms of outfield depth there he's behind lars new bar and he's behind Corey dickerson both of whom are also left-handed hitting corner outfield bats and both of whom have uh you know, over 900 OPS since the start of July, um, you know, both actually playing quite well right now. Um, and one thing we know about the Cardinals, they, they really like a guy gets his shot and he kind of gets his full shot before they go on to, you know, to the next guy. And so, um, you know, I think that's true with new That's true with, 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 Dickerson for sure. Um, you know, new frankly, with his defense as well and hitting like he's doing and with, uh, you know, a starting outfield spot open, I think Newt Barr is playing his way into that right field role, uh, potentially for the remainder of the season, certainly if he
1: keeps playing like he is right now, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. And something about Newt Barr uh, that I, I think sometimes we tend to lose track of is how good of a plate approach he has. And with the work that he's done on his swing to generate more Power yep. and more exit velocity. I you know, we're one of the really interesting tweets that I saw from Eno Saras, and it was months ago, uh, was a front office person said that uh player acquisition nowadays is identifying a skill change before it happens. And I thought that was really interesting. And what it means is, uh, everything is is. There's scouting is still very important, but when you're looking at folks who are in the high uh, major or excuse me, high minors or the major leagues, they have so much data on them that you know they know who that player is. Everyone knows who that player is inside and out in a way that teams have never known before because they have it down, you know, to the millimeter how far they traveled to catch a fly ball, for example, and how hard they hit it. And so uh, you, you have to be on the lookout for what our skill set changes. And, you know, Newt Barr spent the offseason at driveline and then spent the All-Star break there, too, if I remember correctly, from the STL Today reporting. And, you know, you look at the results he's starting to get from that, that revamp swing. And you attach those on to his hitting approach, and that is a very interesting yeah. player, especially for a team that has been too right right-handed heavy in the lineup uh, for a couple of years. Yeah, ago.
0: yeah, no, and and so uh, you've got in Lars Newtbar uh, a player who's who's you know uh, again over the last month or so been putting up a uh, you know north of 900 OPS in the major leagues. I understand that Alec Burleson has been putting up a you know that in triple a but like again people let's think of that in context here you know what lars new is doing is 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 frankly more impressive at this moment um and plus compared to all of those guys we've mentioned you know lars Newbar is uh, a plus defender and none of those other players we've mentioned um are uh and so uh he's got that going as well so yeah in terms of when does he come up I agree with you. If Corey Dickerson ever exits, um, I think that is probably the point where he joins the team. But you're right; Yipez is out there as well, and I do feel like Burleson is enough of a Fabregas egg type player that I don't think they would want to bring Burleson up into the kind of what used to be Lars Nukbar's role, which was you know pretty much the you know the end of the bench guy. Um, I, so I don't really see them. Don't really see them doing that. So I think there's a, a good chance that he doesn't come up until next season. Now, in terms of the 40 man roster question, you know, there's when you really look at the 40 man roster, there's there's pretty much always some guys you can part with on there. Um, I think the the most the, the next move we're likely to see on the 40 man roster is uh, you know, Steven Matz moving to the 60 day roster. Uh, injured list, you know, unless they remain really confident that he can come back. But that's definitely a a move of least resistance on there. Um, But, you know, otherwise looking if they in the event they needed to bring him up, you know, Connor Capel is still on the 40 man roster. Kramer Robertson is back on the 40 man roster after they reacquired him. I, um, I think he was on two other teams. Wasn't he before he came back to the Cardinals? Um, you know, those are, those are guys who I think if the Cardinals had to, you know, put them on, on waivers, you know, if it was time for
1: Alec Burleson, they would do that in a heartbeat. So. And the other thing to keep in mind is, is Jack Flaherty's on the 60 day. Yeah. And so you're going to need to, and I think what I, I we think might see I think it's Matt is... to the 60 and Flaherty
0: activated. Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. I think you, you
0: were probably going to see a swap there just as you've described it. So, all right. So Ben changing things up a little, uh, Sarah, Ann, again, one of our, uh, most frequent uh, listeners and commenters, uh, asks us in a fight to the death, who would win Tyler O'Neill or an
1: Alaskan Brown bear? Uh, Tyler O'Neill, uh, would win because he is very strong and very fast and even though it's an Alaskan brown bear, uh, he is from Canada. So I assume he has some experience yes. fighting bears. And I think Canadian brown bears are just as fierce as Alaskan brown bears. Oh, I, I would yeah. assume so. So uh, I I would go with uh, Tyler O'Neill. For and let's
0: versions. not forget, folks, what what allowed man to rise to the top of the food chain? It was not our strength. It was our intelligence. And, uh, and and Tyler O'Neill is, is a man of, of intellect um, as well, I think, certainly in comparison to an Alaskan brown bear. So I think his formidable strength for a human being coupled with his, let's say, at least average intelligence for a human being. I'm with you. It's, uh, it's Tyler O'Neill all day. Uh, Greg Maturin asks, how do you see the rota- rotation shaking out next year? If Waino goes another and if he does not, does Hudson move to the pen or get traded non-tendered? Does one of Peante, Liberator, or Thompson get a spot? Uh Ben, what do you what do you think
1: looking ahead to next year? Um, I think they are gonna re-sign Wainwright. Yeah. It it seems to me that if Wainwright were one hundred percent uh not going to be coming back we would have heard it from now uh or heard it by now uh with all of the yachty and poohole stuff um but everything about wainwright even though he's talked about getting his kids a puppy and 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 he wants to be a dad i i also think you You look at him and if he has another good year he could be in the hall of fame
0: and ben let's be honest you and i are both dads if we could be major league pitchers wouldn't
1: we do that in a heartbeat (laughs) <laughs> well being a major league uh starting pitcher is probably the least Good demanding point. yeah right of okay. of being There's a point. major league, he has more off days than i, I do <laughs> yes exactly and so i think he does get to spend you know quite a bit of time with his family as it is um and if he can go around and still be effective and he gets to do the the open auditions to take John Smoltz's job while John Smoltz is in the booth uh, for a national broadcast. Uh, why wouldn't he do that? Um, now the, the one thing I don't know is maybe he, he closes things out with Yachty and he just decides, I want my last pitch in the majors to be the Yachty Air Molina. Right. And after that happens I, to me, that, maybe is still in the offing, but to me, I feel like with Pujols announcing with Yachty announcing the momentum was there, like, you know, one last ride, this is it. Um, And he hasn't done that. And I think he still enjoys what he's doing and and he might come back. Um, And so I, I think if he does come back, it's with the Cardinals. Um, and if he does not come back, it wouldn't surprise me if the Cardinal signed Quintana to kind of fill his role yeah. as that veteran. Uh, and it, does that seem like something to you that I agree a hundred percent.
0: And, uh, it was a few episodes ago, but, um, I, I kind of broke down, you know, Wainwright, just this late career Renaissance, when you look at peers who have done what he's done, you know, uh, you know, m- maybe dipped a little in their mid 30s or so, but then had as many consistent seasons, um, you know, on either side of 40 as he has. They actually tend to keep going into the future so i'll be honest i could see wayne wayno pitching for another two or even three years um you know just based on this kind of pretty consistent baseline he's established over the last three years or so um so i would expect as well as he's pitching i would expect that he comes back he certainly may not but yeah i expect he would come back and i think 100 percent, he just seems like a guy that if he comes back he's gonna you know he's gonna pitch for st louis um so so let's just look at their rotation next year. If Waino comes back, you just with guys that they w- would have under contract. You've got Wainwright, Michaelis, Flaherty, Mats, and Montgomery. So there's your there's your five man starting rotation right there. So you know they're pretty much already set to come into next year. And again, even if you take Waino off that list. I mean, they're they're going to come into next year, frankly, in a better position than they've been the last few years where, you know, we always had kind of a, a low end competition for, you know, maybe the last two rotation positions with your, you know, your various, uh, you know, John Gans and such, um, you know, kind of in the mix there. Um, so, Ben, I guess to the other part of this question, though, let's assume Wayno not there. Um And so in that case, you don't have somebody who's kind of locked in there. I agree with you. I think that Quintana seems like a guy that they might kind of extend. He was on a one-year make good contract. Frankly, I think they'd be working on that right now if there weren't some question about Wainwright, you know, because they're not going to sign Quintana and then also sign Wainwright because, again, I just listed five names and they're not going to have that many veterans on, you know, kind of, uh, you know, multi-year or, you know, at least, you know, under contract anyway. Um, so, so you know, in a universe where Ueno is not going to be there, I think Cantana's is an option. What do you think about those internal options? Uh, Greg asked about piante, Liberatore, Thompson, uh, etc.
1: Well, the you know, you have Hudson is there um, as well. And I think he's... Oh, how could I forget Dakota Hudson? <laughs> <laughs> and he's uh, entering his second ARB season. And it feels like the team might you know he's getting that into that realm where he's more expensive and the team doesn't want to pay for him given his production and so i would not be at all surprised to see a trade on that front and then uh i i think uh payante is probably gonna do next year what they did with him this year to start the season and that's pitch out of the bullpen. And then I think it's, you know, probably Libertor and Thompson are in triple a and they're the next guys up. Uh, and then you, you you also though, have to look to that next wave of, yep. you know, McGreevy uh, and, and, and the guys you've, yep. yep. And Graceffo, uh who they have in double a, because they're going to be knocking on the door by mid season, I think. And so yep. Um, there, it took them a little while, but I think they've gotten back to the point where they have the depth that they like. Um, because as we've talked about before, what the Dodgers have done is they've basically compiled like a seven or eight man starting rotation, uh, yep. for all intents and purposes. And as you've seen what happened in LA this year, uh, it's a smart thing to do yeah. <laughs> because yeah. pitchers get hurt. And I think that LA is also a lot more aggressive with the injured list. Um, and I think if the Cardinals are able to have the depth that it looks like they will have on paper next year, they can be a little more aggressive where it's, you know, we aren't seeing how you feel after your start. Mm-hmm. If you have an issue, you're just going to go on the 15 day and we'll call yeah. the next guy up and you can have a couple weeks off and we'll yeah. go from there.
0: And, yeah. and I think
1: that's where they want to be and where they need to be.
0: Yeah, we've we've talked for a long time about how, you know, good clubs don't have a five man rotation. They have a six, seven, even eight man rotation. And so, you know, again, we, we kind of focused a lot on the the top five. And we are in a case here where it does look like the Cardinals might have a pretty clear top five going into spring training, which they haven't had. But, yeah, even in the world where that's the case, they definitely need those kind of, you know, six, seven, eight guys. So just real quick on those guys. Yeah. I mean, Hudson, for me, is really approaching non tender territory. Um, I think they're they're giving him a, you know a, a quite a ch- you know an extended chance this year just to kind of prove something. He is a former number one pick, so there's some kind of pedigree there. I think they're still trying to extract value out of, but I I, I could see him in arbitrate you know as a guy who. With with as many starts as he puts up, could could get a value in arbitration that's not worth them picking up. So he certainly could see him getting non tendered. Um, you know, of those other guys, I think you have to Peyante at the front just because he's done it more than you know than the others have. Um, so I think he would probably be next in line, and I think Peante would be fine. But again, Peante really seems to be more of that kind of you know, pitch to hopefully weak contact contact back end of a rotation type guys. So, um, you know, he might be able to fill in and be fine, but I don't I don't see a lot of opportunity for him to kind of excel there. Uh, Libertor and Thompson are, you know, are still guys with, you know, some some fairly high prospect pedigree. Um, You know, Libertor has been really awful in the majors this season. But I know from talking to Kyle and people that watch him in the majors, they feel like we've kind of seen like the worst possible case scenario there. You know, he still does have some prospect shine on him there are there are certainly some skills there you know he can spin a curveball etc so you know there, somebody like him you know potentially could take a step forward um, you know he and Thompson both and Thompson has gotten much better results when he's been at the major leagues this year you know I think there are still guys who could take a step forward to get you know into the back of that rotation and and still probably have a ceiling as maybe a mid-rotation type guy and then uh, lastly I mean I agree with you I think Graceffo and McGreevy. Um, those guys, I, I, wouldn't expect either of them to, you know, be on the staff at the beginning of the season, but certainly by midseason. And frankly, Graceffo does seem like exactly the kind of guy that they, you know, su- you know, kind of surprises them in spring training and ends up in a bullpen role. And then eventually, in, you know, into a rotation role, we've definitely seen them do that several times um, with guys like that.
1: Yeah. And really, They've, they had a lull in, you know, the, the legit pitching depth. And now I think they're maybe building that back up. Um, And it'll be interesting to see uh, if they make any changes uh, with respect to the major league uh, pitching coach uh, Mm -hmm. and, and how that might uh, interplay with player development. You know, similar to how with Albert, they're like, you are revamping hitting for our whole system. And we want you at the major league level because, you know, it's all going to culminate to that point. And so uh, it's interesting to me that they haven't, at least not overtly, made such a bold move on the pitching side. Yep. All right, um, JD asks,
0: Dylan Carlson regular rates, regularly rates below average in outfielder jump. We've seen him take really nice routes to track down balls that hang in the air for a while, but do you have any concerns in his ability to get to line drives in the gap? Will that eventually pull him out of center field?
1: Uh, I think he does really well uh, moving laterally on balls um, and just tracking them in the minors. I think he tends to struggle more uh, when he's going back and coming forward, um, and I think that might play a part in his bad jump uh, numbers. Uh, but the the thing for me is he is just he's he's not elite in the way that Bader was, right? And, and to me, it almost feels Ben like this is a move to clear up. Corner outfield plate appearances for the Yapezes and Newt Bars and Burleys of of the organization. Yep. And Jordan Walker's yep. next year. Yes. And Jordan Walker's. And they are looking perhaps more at his offensive profile. Yep. And in a way, it almost feels th- this is going to sound like an insult, but let me continue. Almost like, uh, sort of like with Skip Schumacher where they're looking at his offensive profile and it's nowhere near as drastic a shift. And I don't mean to make it out to be that way, but where they look at his, his bat and say, you know, this will play here if yeah. he can field at a certain level. Yep. And I think that's where we are. And I think he's probably an average-ish center fielder, maybe a little above average once he starts playing there every day. Yep. And so I, I think it's a shift uh, that'll work and, you know, yeah, like in, f- in five years, because keep in mind how young he is yeah. in five years, he might move out of center field uh, just because of the way folks skill ages. But yep. right now, I think for the, the medium term, he is uh, a pretty solid bet uh, to play most days in center field.
0: Yeah, I I would agree 100%. And, um, you know, outfield defense is I feel like it's something that's really hard for us to judge with the eye test, Um, you know, uh, with positioning and with the fact that we, of course, tend to see like the, you know, exciting end of a a route, you know, if it's a diving catch or things like that, those really stick out in our minds. So um, I do, you know, try to look at the kind of um, metrics that are out there for outfield defense and um, and, you know. Carlson, um, he's been a little over the map at center field. There was a point a year ago where he's really rated really poorly, um, you know, better now, but I agree with you. I think he's, he's probably an average ish defender out there, but yeah, I mean, this is a tale as old as time. You take the, the great offensive player and you put him in the, the most rigorous defensive position that he can handle. All right. And then you free up uh, a corner position for, uh, you know, an even better bat. And I, I agree a hundred percent. I think that's what's happening here. Dylan Carlson looks to me like a guy who yeah, could play center field for uh, you know, a few years early in his career, probably ultimately, you know, moves back to a corner. But um, when you look at who the Cardinals have in their system, yeah, and you think about all those names we mentioned potentially slotting into a corner outfield spot, you gotta like what that means overall. Uh Kramer Supremacy asks, uh, he's and he, he says, here's a huge one here. Tony LaRusso's number 10 is retired but if TLR were to somehow end up back in St. Louis, what happens with the number thing? 10 is retired, but it's retired because of TLR. So could he wear it? I think I overcomplicated it. Basically, can someone wear their own retired number? Ben, I try to think of an example where this has actually happened. Uh, Maybe you have one. I couldn't come up with a specific example, but I think clearly you're they're going to let you wear your number if it's you know it's i think when you have a retired number it's retired so no one else can ever wear it but the else is important there i think clearly you could still wear it um you know albert pujols as a sort of recent example here now of course his number wasn't formally retired but um you know i don't think uh you know if john gantt had come into spring training and said hey i see five is available i don't think they were given five
1: to john gantt what do you think uh no they were not um you know, my thought was in spring training, like Ozzie Smith will come back and work with players. Uh, and usually exactly. he's got the warm up stuff on. Yeah. But you know that he has a jersey and you know that it's number one. Yeah. And if uh, Tony LaRusse ever comes back, uh, which 100% will never happen um, with the way they have revamped the hierarchy of management in St. Louis I just there isn't a world where Tony Larusso comes back no. um but if he were you know the the other thing to keep in mind is who retired the number the St. Louis Cardinals and and who agreed to have it retired and who did they honor Tony Larusso mm-hmm. so if Tony Larusso is coming back everyone who is involved in this decision and has a say in it uh can just as easily say yeah, you get to wear number 10 again. You get to keep your panel on the outfield wall. Yep. Um, and we will simply take it out of or maintain it out of rotation for everyone other than you. And I, I think that's what would
0: happen. Yeah, and Ben, you the, great point there. It's the, the Cardinals, and by the Cardinals, we mean Bill DeWitt, do whatever they want. Um, I wrote an article several years ago at Viva Albertos about the Mark McGuire statue for, uh, you know, out in front of the ballpark, which they actually had made. And then between the time they kind of commissioned it to be made and the time they would have unveiled it, you know, the Mark McGuire narrative took enough of a turn that turned that They said, "Eh." and so, so far as anyone knows, it's still in storage somewhere in, you know, (laughs) in, in the, the basement. And so then at the time they kind of announced, uh, you know, well, a, a new sort of policy, if you will, saying, well, we'll re- retire the numbers and put statues out for uh, baseball Hall of Fame, you know, National Baseball Hall of Famers. And, you know, they've they've stuck to that since then. You know, we saw, of course, uh, you know, Ted Simmons, you know, kind of recently get that treatment, etc. So, you know, that's what they say is the rule right now. But it's changed many times um, over the years, that's why we have Gussie Bush having the number 85 retired out there because Gussie Bush was the owner and it was his 85th birthday and he thought that would be fun. So, you know, <laughs> these, these things can change at, at any time. Um, Michael Diver asks, is Miles Michaelis, a sneaky quick pitch artist or is he the victim of capricious and inconsistently applied rulings? And I wasn't sure I followed this at first, Ben, but I think he's referring to kind of guys stepping out on on Michaelis um, when he's when he's uh, he's pitching there and that kind of frustrating Michaelis. Is that is that how you read this question?
1: Yeah. And the umpires, uh, you know, seemingly giving the batters. Yeah preferential treatment when they do these things. I I think uh, Michaelis just works very quickly, and I think he, he does do quick pitches, but I think the primary driver of the frustration is Michaelis works really quickly, and he wants to get the ball and go. And so batters try to mess with him to yep. get a competitive advantage by stepping out, calling time. And the umpires have aided and abetted them in doing this a few times this year. And, and I think that's what it really comes from is Miles Michaelis works fast and he wants to work fast yeah. and batters want to mess with his rhythm. So they're monkeying around with timeouts and stepping out of the box, that type of thing. And Michaelis doesn't like it. And I understand why. Yeah.
0: I mean, this is kind of a, a tale as old as time, the, you know, pitchers and batters. Um, trying to dictate the rhythm of an at bat, and and Miles Michaelis really wants that that fast pace. We've seen even just by the numbers, he is one of the quickest workers, you know, in Major League Baseball. So I really I think that's the reason that we see it with him because it's a case where he's really pushing to keep the speed up, and the batters, you know, want a little more time for themselves, or more so, they just want to break up that rhythm because they know that that's what Michaelis wants, and that's kind of to his advantage. So I think that's kind of why we see it there. You know, we'll, well, um What's interesting? I was about to say we'll continue to see that, but you know, if the pitch clock rules come in, we really won't because you know that that really kind of codifies some of this. That, you know, there's limitations on you know when the batter can step out. The pitcher has to deliver the pitch within a certain period of time. So, you know, we could with Miles Michaelis here be seeing one of the last kind of real you know battles in terms of uh, in terms of dictating the the tempo if if we in fact get the pitch clock next season.
1: Yeah, because. Uh, the umpires will be forced to punish batters if they're uh, messing around in that way. And I think the, the Cardinals will benefit, at least with the starters, because they've long preached working fast. And while Dakota Hudson doesn't work especially fast, um, they seem to get veterans who understand that and tend to work at a quicker tempo yeah. Uh, for the rotation. Well, and whether or not it benefits the Cardinals, Ben,
0: it will benefit the fans. And so (laughs) having, having gone to (laughs) a number of minor league games where the pitch clock is instituted, I am 1000% in favor of the pitch clock coming to major
1: league baseball. And I really hope that BS Midwest will do uh, with Michaelis, what they did with Michael Walker, when they were playing the Rays, I probably like nine or 10 years ago. And the Rays had a slow-working lefty, and they just did. They put them side by side and did like a fast motion of their inning, mm-hmm. and it was like Michael Walker was throwing like three pitches per one pitch. Maybe maybe they could do this just for fun with Michaelis and Gallegos, yeah, or Hudson. and we could we or Hudson, and we can see just how much quicker it is uh, on a pitch to pitch basis in terms of how many pitches does Michaelis throw in the time it takes Hudson to throw yeah. uh, a pitch. Uh, Cause that was really fun. Uh, and frankly, I think broadcasts need to do more fun stuff like that. And I would really appreciate it uh, if they would help illustrate it in such a, an evocative way. Yeah.
0: Well, and I'll say this, uh, you know, uh, Hudson and Gallegos are both brutal to watch in terms of the time that they take uh Galligos at the at least you know Gaigos is often coming in in a late game kind of situation so like last night and again we're recording this on Sunday morning you know he came in to finish off that game against the Yankees it's a 1-0 game so in a situation like that you know if the pitcher's taking just a little bit extra time to really get himself make sure he makes his pitch it feels somewhat appropriate given the gravity of the situation Oh my God, Hudson, when he's taken forever, you know, with like, you know, one out in the third inning of a like noon game on a Sunday and it's, you know, 115 degrees out there. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, it's unwatchable, frankly. Uh, and with that, I'd like to move on to our next question from Alex Wassilik, who asks, do you agree with the decision to move Peante to the bullpen and use Hudson as a starter? And Ben, I'm just going to move right ahead on this. And I'm going to say even though I think we've talked several times on this episode now about how, you know, Peante, I, I I'm more optimistic about Peante overall as a pitcher. I think Peante is a better pitcher right now. I do agree with the decision to use Hudson as continue using Hudson as a starter, largely because, you know, Peante is a guy where I think you have some workload concerns. And so moving him into the bullpen, you're going to keep those innings down. But also I think Peante has more potential value as a, uh, you know, kind of middle inning type relief pitcher than Hudson does. So I think you leave Hudson in there as a starter because that's probably the only place he has any potential value at all. And then once he's shown you he, he can't even do that, you know, then you, you kind of make a tough decision. What, what do you think?
1: I agree with your take 100%. Um, I would also say that their respective repertoires, uh, Hudson is your uh, prototypical... I guess probably like uh, mid-90s, mid-1990s starter where yeah. <laughs> you know he has a really good sinker and a good slider and we'll see how much we can get out of that. And so uh, it's also though worth keeping in mind, he is coming off of surgery and yeah. he has described how he has a lot more range of motion mm-hmm. since he repaired his arm yeah. uh, and he's working with his mechanics in that way And so, you know, he is able to get that very good ground ball rate. He's established he can do that as a starter. And, you know, he does have the good slider. And so I think you still need to give him that runway, um, if for no other reason than for the other pitchers who are going to say, well, are they just going to give up on me if I undergo Tommy John surgery and I don't bounce back and pitch as well as I did before it? And, you know – something that I think a lot of times folks can lose track of is these are people and, yeah. <laughs> you know, you need to manage them as, uh, as human beings and, you know, give them, uh, credit and respect for what they have accomplished up to that point. Um, and I think there's a bit of that with Hudson and I think it's understandable. Yeah. And so hopefully he's able to, you know, close things out this year, uh, find those mechanics and and have a good home stretch.
0: Yeah. And and I think it is also to be fair to Dakota Hudson, um, you know, the the break on his two seam and the break on his slider. I mean, th- those those can definitely be plus major league pitches like there is, you know, there's a skill set there, you know, in a way. You know, there's some similarity with Jordan Hicks. You know, his his stuff isn't quite as eye popping as Jordan Hicks, but there's somewhat similar in that. Like you can you can clearly see some good stuff there, but they just haven't really found a way to consistently harness that to make them effective major league pitchers um, uh, over over a long term. Um, our last question, Ben Sashin Parikh asked previously. You've mentioned we wouldn't have gotten the same performance out of Alcantara Gallon when referencing the trade that shall not be named. If lack of pitching development means missing out on Cy Young or mid-rotation starters, isn't that a code red level problem? Uh, ben, what do you think?
1: Uh, I think it's a problem. And when you look at this team and you look at the pitchers that they have developed from within their system uh, who have been contributors at the major league level and you compare the Lilliquist era to the Maddox era, and these are also different front offices. Uh, there have been changes in player development as well. Um, but when you you look at the overall uh, kind of change in what I would view as the profile of their high-level prospects, even Matthew Liberatore is someone they acquired from another organization. Yeah. But his uh, ascent has not been smooth, and he does not look like a major league pitcher when he has pitched for the Cardinals. And that's a problem. Yeah. And I don't know if it's code red, uh, but I am very interested to know how the team is using tech and how that integrates with their player development and the minors, but also uh, at the major league level, how are they helping a Dakota Hudson, for example, find his optimal release point and repeat a delivery that allows him to, to hit that and also allows him to say, use his slider and sinker off of one another. And, and how is that not coming through? Like I get that Mike Maddox comes out and does the claw, puts his hand on someone's shoulder and has a lot of success doing those things. But we have to also look at the team has had to go out and acquire four starting pitchers at the trade deadline, two in each of the last two seasons. And so uh, why are they having to do that? Why have the internal options not worked? Because, you know, like just even looking at an Oviedo, Ben, Oviedo had better stuff than either John Lester or Jay Happ. Why is it that the Cardinals were unable to turn him into a serviceable number five starter when they had injuries hit?
0: Yeah. So, I think Oviedo is actually a good a good example for you there, but I, but I I I disagree a little bit with you here, Ben. Right? At least kind of have to me. There's there's a little bit of a chicken or the egg question here because um, yes, I think you can certainly say it would be 100 accurate to say you know we haven't seen uh, starting pitchers of the Alcantara Gallon mold really come through the system you know since that trade happened, but is that because they're not developing these guys or is it because they just haven't had guys with that profile, you know, in there. And and really when we talk about with that profile, we're talking more of the kind of, you know, top rotation, high strikeout rate type pitchers. And I think Oviedo was a good example because he is a guy who I think had the stuff and the velocity that you could see maybe developing of that kind of guy. And he didn't, but you know, most of these other guys, that's, you know, that's never who they would have been. I don't think under, you know, even the even the best kind of possible circumstances, um, you know, Flaherty did come through. Flarity's a little more of that profile. Um, you know, I think, you know, Flaherty, although he kind of was early on in this maybe timeline of what we're talking about here, you know, in terms of when he got up there. And I would say Flaherty from that development standpoint was pretty much a success. It's really just been injuries with him. Um, When I look down, to me, like, Tink Hens is the guy that I think is really going to test this out because he seems to be the guy in their system who really does have that, like, you know, high octane, like, you know, the ceiling on him is, you know, like... Cy Young caliber in a way that I don't think it is for anyone else in their system. And frankly, and I talk about this with Kyle, it surprises me that they haven't even really gone out to draft guys with those kind of ceilings, you know, in the draft this year, we saw them going after, you know, mostly left-handed pitchers, kind of, you know, low nineties, funky arm slots, that kind of stuff. So I I don't know. You get you know what I'm saying, Ben? Like I, 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 I'm not sure how much of this I can attribute to them not developing pitchers and how much this is just kind of, these are the kind of kind of pitchers they've brought into their system.
1: Yes, it's, I really like your analogy. It's a chicken or egg uh, situation. And I agree with it. I think McGreevy, uh, you know, he has that first round pedigree. You know, he's slated to be a fast riser. You know, I think he probably fits that mold as well. Yeah, Um, yeah, he does. But so it'll be interesting because he's definitely like he's like a Lance Lynn, uh, a Michael Walker type um, in a way. And so the Cardinals have historically been able to turn guys with that profile into useful starters. And so it'll be interesting to see if they can do that again. Um, I'm going to complain one more time because I don't know if I'll ever be able to do it again, though. Uh, Whoever on the Major League staff was encouraging carlos martinez to use a cutter last year you know they need to be talked to because the pitch was terrible uh and it was his worst pitch and he was throwing it too often and it was getting shelled and i just can't for the life of me understand how that came about to happen obviously there was a bunch of other stuff going on with carlos martinez but you know there was already a fire there. We don't need to pour gasoline on it in the form of a new pitch that sucks. So yeah, I, I mean, I mean, um, I think we could have a, a congressional investigation
0: to figure out like what happened with Carlos Martinez in the system because you know probably the most talented pitcher you know to come through the system in the last ten years and absolutely had a lot of success, but but um, you know just uh, in, in a lot of ways didn't entirely harness you know that potential that was there, and so yeah, was it you know, was it, was it coaching? Was it his own kind of, you know, planning and game planning? And then a- after a certain point, it was also injuries, you know? Um, and yeah. so, uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot, a lot going on there. And, and man, I still sometimes shoot up in bed in the middle of the night, as I think about the career that Carlos Martinez could have had.
1: <laughs> well, and it looked like he was going to have, uh, well, yeah, you know, really. Before the, the, the but, yeah. 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 I mean, he was a very good, uh, starter for three seasons. Um, and, and then it just kind of fell apart and now it looks like he's probably done in the majors, uh, which is sad to see, but I I just follow him on
0: Instagram, Ben, and there's been a real uptick in like the, like workout picks on Instagram. So it very much has the look of like, look at me, I'm getting back in shape. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some, do some workouts, uh, you know, in the off season.
1: Well, good for him. I hope he has success. Uh, but I, I am, I am not sad that I will never watch him throw a cutter <laughs> while wearing a Cardinals uniform again because it was just, it was, uh, just very confusing and very frustrating uh, to see happen over and over again. Uh, well, last year, Wainwright was throwing a garbage cutter for a few years there too, and that
0: was, you know, something that he was kind of having trouble with. So who was, who was the cutter advocate? Uh, Uh,
1: I think it was Chris Carpenter. If we're being honest, Uh, he developed that cutter and had success with it. And then it spread uh, like a virus uh, and stayed with the organization. Even after he left, when did he leave for Anaheim? Was that before last year? Or was it this most recent offseason? I can't remember. he, he, He was still interacting with the pitchers and, uh, I feel like he was the the chief cutter advocate. And uh, to be fair, uh, Wainwright uh, has had some success with the cutter in recent years uh, and, and relies on it. And it's been a, a pretty good pitch for him uh, this year. So, yeah. uh, but that being said, um I, I still just cannot believe that they stuck with that pitch with how hard it got hit and how bad it was for Carlos Martinez, but I digress. Um, So I I don't, all this is to say, uh, Sashin, I I don't know if it's a code red situation because uh, we don't know whether this is a product of the players they are acquiring uh, as amateurs and signing for the organization Uh, if it's a major league staff problem or a combination thereof. Um, But I'm certain that the president of baseball operations is on it. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, will well, and it. it's also, it's been evolving and, you know, the,
0: the sort of like pitching lab, they were a little late developing that, but that's, you know, come online in the last couple of years here, they added the, and I can't think of the name of the guy, but they have a, kind of a minor league pitching coordinator now who's kind of overseeing this and things like that. So there's been some evolution there and really, you have to think it's it's probably two to three years after those kind of pieces are in place that you could even really look at performance on your major league team and say, oh, OK, I now see the, you know, the results of this. So and by that point, the whole industry and everything will be changing again anyway. <laughs> so it's one of those like hard, it's hard <laughs> to ever put your finger on something like this. So I agree. Hopefully not a not a code red, but definitely something that that uh, uh noticed and that we have noticed as well. Ben, we have reached the end of our questions. Um, so before we wrap things up, and we've got uh, weekly off days here on Mondays for the next few weeks, so um, we're going to be uh, we're going to be on the seeing red schedule, I think, for the next few weeks, Ben. But uh, uh, before we wrap up for today, uh, what are you going to be looking for?
1: Uh, I am going to be looking for how uh, Oliver Marmol plays matchups. Uh, with the lineup uh, with Donovan, with Edmund, DeYoung, Newtbar, Dickerson, and then once Yapes gets healthy again, uh, because I think it's going to be uh, really interesting since the team, uh, you know, got rid of Harrison Bader. I think it frees him up a little bit to play matchups. And I'm interested to see who he starts, where and when. And I think our listeners might find that interesting as well as the team uh, looks to continue on the success they've had over the last week. Yeah. Well,
0: interesting, Ben, you're kind of on the lookout for one thing that's a sort of new development after the trade deadline. And I'm kind of looking on the other side of things. Um, I'm going to be looking at starter innings and on our, our last show, we did a kind of special, uh, Uh, Twitter live spaces um, which we also put in the podcast feed but um, Ben you presented some really interesting information just about uh, you know the sort of uh, average number of innings that Cardinal starters have been going and you know in short uh, Wainwright and Michaelis have been above league average but the rest of their starters had been fairly significantly below um, league average well now that we've got Quintana and Montgomery in the mix I'm really going to be interested to see um, you know uh, can they complete five, you know, between five and six innings consistently? Um, I don't expect, you know, the Hudson or whatever the last piece is. I, I don't really expect that. But for those two guys, I'm really going to watch that. And because if if the majority of the starters and the staff each time through the rotation are going five and six innings, I think you're just going to see. Uh, ramifications of that um, throughout because obviously that takes load off the bullpen. You're able to better use your stronger bullpen pieces, you know, effectively at the times you need them. And so, um, you know, they've been on a run of wins here, uh, you know, of late. And uh, I think you're likely to see that continue. If those starters are giving you, you know, those, those, uh, you know, extra inning or two.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I, that, that, And it also, you know, that's what the team's going for. So it's also a good measure of whether or not they were successful uh, in attaining the goal that they had at the trade deadline.
0: Yep, 100%, 100% well ben i think that's uh it for today um uh, as always we we uh, appreciate the the questions uh you can always send questions to us uh, at cardinals off day on, on twitter um we do i we usually put out a call kind of shortly before a new episode but even if you send them to us kind of in the middle of the week or something we keep track of those we try to answer all of them appreciate the engagement from everybody and we will look forward to talking to you on the next cardinals off day
1: Go, go Carter.